You're listening to Climate Rising, an official podcast of Harvard Business School's Business and Environment Initiative. Before we get into today's episode, let me tell you about a new HBS online course called Business and Climate Change that we've just launched. In this five-week asynchronous online course, you'll learn the tools and tactics companies around the world are using to become more resilient to droughts, floods, wildfires, and storms, and how they're engaging in mitigation to reduce their emissions. This course enables you to leverage those insights to inform your own organization's strategy. Learn more and apply at the HBS online website or at hbs.me slash business and climate change. Now, on to Climate Rising. Seventh Gen has always been a provocateur. We've been out there at the front pushing and more progressive ideas, hoping that we're creating a pull for other companies to come along. So net zero, I would say, laudable commitments, yes. But when you start to unpack some of the activities that we're seeing other companies pursue, they're not getting to the root cause of the issue. And so we wanted to expose that with a real zero commitment and encourage others to come along with us with that source reduction. This is Climate Rising, a podcast from Harvard Business School, and I'm your host, Mike Toffel, a professor here at HBS. A lot of companies have declared net zero climate targets. Today's is the first in a series of episodes that seeks to unpack what that means and how companies are going about achieving these commitments. In this episode, I'm talking with Ashley Orgain, Chief Impact Officer at 7th Generation, a home care company that's built its entire brand around sustainability. I'll ask Ashley why they've chosen to set a real zero goal instead of a net zero goal and what that means in practice. I'll also ask her how 7th Generation is applying its climate lens to aspects of their business that aren't typically included in corporate climate goals, like marketing and creative services. Here's my interview with Ashley Orgain from 7th Generation. Ashley, thanks so much for joining us here on Climate Rising. Mike, it's great to be here. So let's start with an introduction. What's your role at 7th Generation and maybe a bit about how you got there? So I am 7th Gen's first ever Chief Impact Officer, and I've held that position for about a year now. Before that, I was our Head of Advocacy and Sustainability. And I started at a company about 14 years ago. I started as an intern when I was pursuing my MBA in green business and you know, knocked on the door of the head of sustainability at the time and asked if they had any special projects. And that was my entree in. And so from intern to chief impact officer, you know, my scope now includes overseeing all of our environmental and social impact. Tell us a little bit about the company. Uh, Seventh Generation has been around for a while, but some of our listeners might not be familiar with it. Seven Generations been around for 30 years, and the inspiration behind the name comes from the great law of the Iroquois, that in our every deliberation, we'll consider our impact on the next seven generations. So from day one, we have been putting out environmentally um, preferable home care products. And for a period of time, we also produced a line of, of baby care. And we sell everything from laundry detergent to spray cleaners. And we do so across the country in a variety of different grocery stores and natural retailers. So a U.S. focus as far as your markets? We are U.S. focused, correct. Let's talk a little bit about its climate journey. I've known a seventh generation for recyclable or compostable products, products with all natural ingredients, 
And more recently, Seventh Generation has been sort of leaning in, as of many companies, to understand its carbon footprint and think about climate change in a more focused way. I know that your recent 2021 climate impact report notes that for scopes one and two, the carbon emissions that are associated with your on-site operations and with your purchased electricity, you've reduced them to zero. And not a lot of companies have made such a claim. And I wonder if you can tell us, first of all, what are those emissions? And then how did you go about reducing them to zero? Well, let me first by saying, I don't want us to get more credit than we're due for this achievement, because a lot of it has to do with the fact that Seven Generation is based in Burlington, Vermont, and that we don't have any of our own facilities. And so we're leasing facilities and exist in a city that is energized by 100% renewable energy, and we have access to thermal that is also renewable. So we have set this ambitious target to get to 100%, and it was a partnership that we had with our city to be able to achieve, and it really is just the fact that we don't run our own manufacturing. We just lease our, our office buildings. Okay, great. So then let's talk about what I will refer to as your upstream, which is the manufacturing of your products, which are done by suppliers. That's part of your your scope three, and then the downstream is the use of the products and the carbon emissions that associate with its use. But let's start upstream. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing with your suppliers to measure and reduce their carbon impacts. So scope three, that's where the problem exists and where we have put all of our energy and effort. And when you look upstream, about 60% of our carbon emissions come from the materials, the ingredients and the packaging that we use to make our products. So the number one driver of that 60% is actually a key ingredient, palm kernel oil that we use, um, or key raw material, palm kernel oil, that we use for our key ingredient surfactants in our, our cleaning agents. So that is something that we have been aware of and we have been setting targets against as it has been uncovered. You know, the second big emission driver of that 60% is another key raw material, citric acid and sodium citrate. And that the emissions from that raw material come from the fact that that is manufactured in Asia on a dirty energy system. And so we've set, you know, target to address that by shifting our sourcing to cleaner energy grids. Europe, North America is where we're starting to set specs for sourcing those raw materials. And then finally, in our polymers, that makes up the remaining part of our scope three upstream. And we have already benefited from emission reductions in choosing to have 100% recyclable um, PCR, you know, in our packaging. But we do have a, a little bit left to go. And some of the plastics that we use are virgin. And so we have a target to move our polymers towards recycled content versus virgin content. So let me just circle back on some of these materials or ingredients that you're referring to. So on the citric acid, you referred to the idea that you're going to change manufacturers so that you can procure this material from cleaner grids. There's lots of things that tend to go into these procurement decisions, cost, availability, responsiveness, quality. One doesn't hear grid cleanliness as a top 10 factor in the conversations that I have with folks about where are they going to procure or where are they going to build their plants. Is this new or is this just an area that you are emphasizing that most other companies don't? And where does this fit among the many other things that must go into the decision about where to procure? 
So it's not new to us. I mean, when we look at the decisions that are within our direct control, where we can drive down our emissions, this rises to the top. And so that means that we have to dedicate time and attention and resources against it. And it's not a decision that sustainability team can make alone. And so as you point out, it requires really strong partnership with our procurement teams. And it isn't something that we can turn on a dime usually when six or nine months period of time, right? It takes a lot of lead time to find those suppliers, to build those relationships, to get those contracts. So um, it is it is something, again, that has been set out as an emission we want to reduce. We have a sense of the intervention that needs to be made. And now it's about building the relationships and the plan to to get there. And then on the palm oil side, palm oil has in some places been critiqued as an enabler of deforestation, especially in the tropics, which has climate impacts and also has ecosystem preservation concerns. How have you been navigating the palm oil situation? Palm oil has been a very sticky issue for us for over a decade. And when we understood the devastation to the environment, to the communities, to the ecosystem from this raw material, we set out as one of the first in our industry to commit to RSPO certification. So over a decade ago, we were at the table helping to shape the standards around roundtable and sustainable palm oil. We have been pursuing RSPO for the last decade, but we now understand that that the sustainable production is just a first step. That actually what we want to now pursue is regenerative agriculture. And so the, the role that we're playing right now is helping to shape the next level of standards that we anticipate will come to continuously improve the sourcing of, of this ingredient that'll be beneficial to livelihoods and the environment. Great. So just to clarify, RSPO is a standard in the palm oil space that lays out what are the minimum acceptable practices of sustainable palm oil. Is that right? Correct. Yes. Yeah. All right. So Let's talk downstream. So we talked about some of the major impacts of the materials and the ingredients and the packaging on the upstream side. On the downstream side, your detergents and cleaners are being used by customers, and you've identified that as another area where, which has climate impacts based um, on the use of your materials. So can you talk a little bit about, again, what are those issues, and then what steps are you taking to try and reduce so this is where we see actually the most significant impact that we have from a carbon emissions standpoint. Because when you look at our scope three in totality, 90% of that is from consumer use. You back out consumer use in the upstream portion, 60% of that is materials and ingredients and packaging that we just discussed. You put that back in, we still have 90% that actually comes from consumers washing and drying their clothes, and washing and drying their dishes. And the the energy that their homes are using that on you know an outsized basis is coming from a dirty electricity grid. So that is where we see the impact from, from the use phase of our products. And so what can you do based on the fact that your customers live where they live and they have the grid that they have, and by using your products, they're washing their clothes or washing their dishes? What can a company like Seventh Generation do to reduce those impacts? Well, first and foremost, we want to make sure that the products that our consumers use can be efficacious in cold water because it's the the impact that comes when you 
dial up your water to hot or to warm versus keeping it at cold. So number one thing we do is formulate to work in cold water. The second thing we do is we, we educate folks that, that this is you know action you can take, a decision you can make in your own home to reduce your carbon emissions. But we understand that the burden shouldn't be on the consumer alone and that actually this is a much bigger problem that we're facing as a society. And what we need to be doing is moving towards a more renewable ele- electrical energy grid. And so where we find ourselves playing more and more aggressive role is in the advocacy and pushing for progressive public policy around clean renewable energy. Got it. So what you're describing is sort of both the demand side of the customer space, which is that they should hopefully use cold water since your products uh, enable them to do so, and therefore they can require less energy. And on the same side, green the grid so that the energy that they do use is less carbon intensive. Is that the right way to think about that? That's right. Great. So thanks for reviewing some of the major climate impacts associated with your products. Let's talk a bit about the target setting, because one of the things that was most interesting to me when I was becoming reacquainted with Seventh Generation and its climate story is that you've set a goal that you call Real Zero. And in the goal-setting space, there's net zero goals, there's science-based target-associated goals, and now there's real zero goals. And I wonder if you can help us think through, first of all, what's the difference between these and why you've chosen to lean into the real zero as the goal of choice. So if we're talking about what real zero is, I think it's helpful to talk about what it's not. And it's and it's not net zero. And when you look at net zero, it's really about balancing out a company's emissions from what they're producing to what is being extracted. And for seventh generation, we we look at that and say that's not sufficient. That that what we know we need to leave a healthier, livable planet for future generations is to ensure that there's no production and no emissions at at the point of um, source. So we set to counter what was being heralded as you know net zero commitments, a real zero commitment that our efforts are going to go against driving down to total source emission reductions. And it's important to understand the role that we feel like we play within the sustainable business movement is that 7th Gen has always been a provocateur. We've been out there at the front pushing and more progressive ideas, hoping that we're creating a pull for other companies to come along. So net zero, I would say, laudable commitments, yes. But when you start to unpack some of the activities that we're seeing other companies pursue, they're not getting to the root cause of the issue. And so we wanted to expose that with a real zero commitment and encourage others to come along with us with that source reduction. So can you say either conceptually or more tangibly, what are some of the steps that other companies are taking that you would not take because you have a real zero goal and not a net zero goal? We're seeing a lot of companies' activities lead them to offsetting. And we're seeing several companies make commitments that they are going to be foresting a certain acreage or hectareage to offset the amount of emissions that are being produced in production or manufacturing. We know that there is not enough land on planet Earth for all the foresting activities that would need to occur to offset those emissions that are being produced. So seventh generation has made a commitment that we are we are going to move, a, we and we have moved away from offsetting. That is not 
an aspect of our strategy where you will find other companies um, in the, this current environment that is key to them being able to achieve what they're calling net zero. So you mentioned the offsets aren't sufficiently scalable. And of course, there's lots of other concerns about offsets with the additionality and the measurement and the permanence and so on. We've talked about that in earlier episodes. Offsets still are a challenging area for sure. What about on the scope two side? You mentioned earlier that given your location, you have direct access to renewable power, but not everyone does. And so you see things like RECs or procurement programs to try and stimulate the demand or the, and therefore the supply of renewables somewhere else. Would that be within the, the real zero? Is that allowed or is not? Is that, would that also not be allowed? That is allowed and is actually key to our strategy and core principle to that is additionality. So we have, as I shared, manufacturers who make seven gen products. We don't make them ourselves. And we have a commitment to what we call a green power program that has been set as an expectation of all of our manufacturers to procure green power for the percentage of business that seventh generation is of their overall portfolio. And renewable energy credits tend to be key to them achieving that expectation. Okay. That's super interesting. So, and what about science-based targets? Where does that fit into this conversation? Well, we, we've also set a science-based target. We actually were one of the first uh, in our industry. Um, we submitted back in 2017 and, and got approval in 2018. We have a 90% consumer use emission reduction target, incredibly aggressive. And we also have an 80% reduction from our materials, ingredients, and packaging. Making commitments upstream is something that we see with a lot of companies, and they demand data from their suppliers to track their progress. But it's much less common, as far as I know, to set a goal of consumer use or downstream. How will you keep track of the progress you're making with the educational campaigns, the advocacy work you mentioned earlier? How will you know whether you're on track or ahead of schedule or behind schedule? Right now, we're looking at the public policy wins and the campaigns that we have been working on for the last three, four years. We started with a city-level campaign and then moved to state-based campaigns, looking at city-level commitments to renewable and clean energy, and then the same for the state. So we're tracking progress in that direction. Uh, at the federal level, at one point in time, we were tracking progress against the Clean Power Plan. Um, we're now looking at what what is going to come from the IRA. And while obviously not directly because of our activity alone, we have been able to educate and mobilize our consumers right alongside the NGOs that are leading this work and driving our our fans to those organizations to take action and participate in the public policy changes. Got it. So it's a more macro approach as opposed to putting in sensors at your customers' washing machines or dishwashers to see how often they're using a cold cycle, for example. We have not gotten that technical, though we have asked, we have asked consumers to reply to surveys and ask, you know, how often are they washing in cold? And we track that as well. Where is that? Nowadays, what, what's the ballpark sense of that? I would say we're 30 to 60 percent. And it's such a gap because what we're seeing, you know, quite often is consumers intend to do something, but the follow through of behavior is not always is not always there. 
What are the main channels through which you sell? Do you sell, you used to sell direct, if I recall correctly. For a brief period of time, you're right. We had a direct to consumer business. We have a, a very healthy online e-com business across multiple retailers. Uh, we also are in bricks and mortar on shelf at Target and Walmart, your Hannaford's, your Stop and Shop, um, depending upon where you are regionally, many groceries across the U.S. Yeah. I think what folks who haven't thought about this space much may not recognize is that having these distribution channels separates the brands from their customers as opposed to those who sell direct, where they get direct knowledge of who their customers are, what the bundle of goods that they procure, how often they do so, where they actually live. And in, in the case of most companies that sell through middlemen of various types, you have an approximation. Like you, you know how much you sell to this Hannaford's a grocery store, and you can approximate, but you can't really know whether those customers have electrical heat or whether they have natural gas heat unless they respond to surveys that you must include in your packaging, I imagine. That's correct. Yes. It's a challenge to sort of keep track of consumers when they're when they're separated like that. It is. And so I would say, you know, as a mission-based business, we think much more beyond than just the sustainability targets that we're setting. We truly want to leave the world a better place and and not just for the select few that are buying 7th gen, but what is it going to look like and what are the systems that we need to participate in changing so that seven generations out from now, we have a healthy, livable planet. So let's talk about some of the tools that you've deployed, which I think are quite interesting, to prioritize your efforts. For example, I know that you've at least contemplated using an internal carbon tax, which creates a shadow price based on how carbon intensive various options are when you're thinking about new products or new locations. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And is it a real cost or is it just sort of a paperwork cost? How does that how does that play out? So we we set a voluntary internal tax on carbon back in 2015. And to be quite honest, we really struggled to get the right kinds of behaviors out of that vehicle over the course of its lifetime. So we have we have shifted the model. But what it was intended to do was really to incentivize core business functions to think about what they can do on a year-to-year basis to make improvements against our emissions. And where we ended up running into challenges is early on, we could make improvements. We could work with our logistics teams to buy biodiesel. We could work with our supply teams to push out green power programs. But when you start looking at some of these real significant drivers, like palm kernel oil, like sodium citrates, the activities were much longer lead than the annual cycle at which we set and and generated revenue for this tax. And so we rethought the, the, the approach. And we actually retired the carbon tax in its original form, and we put in place what we're calling a carbon fund. And so we still set aside based on our upstream emissions, revenue money every year that funds key projects to target those top three drivers of our of our MIPS, our materials, ingredients, and packaging. And so what does it mean to fund those processes given those are, you're outsourced these, right? These are independent suppliers. So you have funds, they 
are made available to your suppliers to help them as a sort of a co-investment process? So what it looks like this year, because this is the first year we're piloting the program with the fund, is we're actually supporting two on-the-ground implementation partners in Indonesia that are helping to build out a regenerative agricultural standard for palm kernel oil. Palm kernel oil. And they're working directly with farmers, smallholders that are producing palm that will go to mills that hopefully someday will be within seven generations supply shed. And it'll be an improved footprint that we aim to benefit from in the longer term. So starting to get those kind of systems change initiatives underway with this fund um, for a longer lead emission reduction impact. It's interesting that you're choosing this approach to develop a scheme that could change the whole industry and that you hope leads to changes by not just your suppliers, but lots of suppliers, as opposed to working directly with your own suppliers and sort of trying to fix that narrow slice. And that sounds to me, it's consistent with your mission-based approach, which you mentioned earlier. Is that right? That's, that's right on. That's right on. I would also say, and we didn't touch on this earlier, but Seventh Generation was acquired by Unilever back in 2017. And so visibility to the farms that are producing the palm that would end up as a raw material for our ingredients has become more complex. And so our role, you know, is to help create what could be a standard that can get scaled by a Unilever later in time. So it's not just for the broader industry, but it's also what's this role that we can play within our parent company that we look to. So let's talk a little bit about this change in ownership to Unilever. How did that affect the environmental and climate programming at seventh generation? In really great ways, actually. I mean, they they invested in this business that enabled us to grow this team to the size of five. And for a small business, that's a lot of headcount. And I, I truly believe, and we were shared this information at the sale, that they wanted to buy seventh generation because of our mission, because we were leading the home care industry with the environmental standards that we've set, with the social commitments that we've made. And so they have kept that out there as distinct and the promise that we will continue to push and, and lead into with our with our business and our consumers. What's next for seventh generation? Where do you imagine bringing your program? What are the products that they're looking to develop? Are they staying within home care? Are they diversifying out of that? What should we be looking for a few years down the road? When you think about it from a climate perspective, we're looking in a couple of places. So we're starting to explore what kind of innovations that we can do to um, reduce emissions through use that go beyond just cold water? How can we reduce drying time? How we reduce washing time? So innovations we hope to see out um, in the next couple of years. In addition, we're starting to step back and look at what have been hidden emissions um, within a business's portfolio, um, looking really at financed emissions for the very first time. And so Every single decision that we make with a supplier that we use, with a service provider, we're starting to evaluate the climate footprint from that decision. So similar to what we would do with a supply chain, asking our suppliers key questions around the energy that, the, that we use, 
we're starting to look at our banks. We're starting to look at our insurance providers in addition to the marketing and creative service agencies that we use in understanding the fossil fuel clientele that they might have in their portfolio, that um, the work that they might be doing to continue to underwrite or support fossil fuel expansion and extraction that's having unintended consequences and leading to resulting finance emissions. So we're calling this our climate fingerprint, looking again at everything that we are touching that's having unintended consequences and, and the better understanding what we can do about that. Great. So you mentioned banks and uh, insurance companies and uh, marketing agencies or creatives that you work with. Can you take us through an example of one of those verticals? Sure. So why don't I choose marketing and creative services? So much of our fingerprints work has actually been informed by thought leaders and leading advocates who have been creating methodologies to better understand what kind of emissions are resulting from business activities we're seeing, and actually the uh, UN General Secretary called this out at, at a meeting last fall, that PR agencies might be working on one side of their portfolio for a green leader like Seventh Generation and supporting them in advertising and, and building out their marketing engine, while at the same time working to help build out the same services for a Shell or an Exxon that is pushing out information that is confusing and dishonest about their, um, their real climate impacts. So seven generation asking, you know, our, our marketing service creative agencies, are you, who, who, who else are you working with? And how, you know, how do we fit within that business mix? And are there other businesses that we could choose to go work with that are that are more values aligned? Fascinating. So that's sort of asking them who are who are your fellow clients? Yes. Interesting. I, I that's one of the first times I've heard that strategy being deployed. Is that are, are you the first to use this that you know of, or is this common in areas that I just haven't uncovered yet? From a corporate perspective, yes. Um, there is a exceptional organization called Clean Creatives that's out there that has been pushing this agenda and publishes annually what's called the F list that basically exposes the companies that are doing exactly what I described, working for one side of the business to support a green agenda on the other side of the business, pushing disinformation about the climate crisis. Dare I ask, does the F stand for failing? <laughs> it does. <laughs> One of the questions we like to ask all of our guests is, given you've been in this space for quite a while, and I'm sure you deal with those who are excited to get into this space, whether it be in a sustainability space or the impact arena, as it's described in your title, or in business and climate change, where are you seeing the biggest opportunities and what advice do you give to such folks? I feel like an area that is still emerging is around advocacy. I think we're seeing companies uh, understanding the role that they can play in helping to change the system and, and bringing a business case for public policies that are going to protect the planet and improve the health of communities and 
have benefit to their bottom line. And so I, I feel like there's ripe opportunity. Um, and to go even further, to do so by mobilizing consumers, building a relationship with the marketing engine in in the, in a business in a corporate um, environment is where you're seeing more of the sustainability um, agenda head. So it's not just about what we can do internally, but what do we now know about the the role that we play within the larger system and how we can mobilize and engage and activate our consumers to join us in that effort. So I'm hearing two things there. One is branding and marketing and consumer engagement strategy. And then there's also a piece about advocacy to the public policy arena, whether that be done directly or whether you're trying to steer your consumers to dedicate some energy toward uh, the policy arena. Is, am I hearing that right? You are. Yes, you definitely are. And I think the first, you know, a branding marketing agenda is only going to be impactful if it is authentic and it and it can be, you know, when you peel back the layers, validated by commitments and actions that are driven by a sustainability function. I feel like what you're seeing is when when they fail is when you don't have that in place. And since we're talking about, you know, advice, where should folks looking to get into either side of this campaigning, whether it be engaging with customers or engaging in policy more directly, where should they look? Should they be looking in marketing departments and in the government relations departments? Should they be looking in sustainability departments? Should they be going to NGOs to sort of pursue support roles there? Where would you advise them to go seek roles to get into this domain, which sounds super interesting? You know, I have had the honor to hire someone who came from Greenpeace and they are bringing brilliance to the team that is unmatched. So I look at some of my peers in my role and they're doing the same. They are sourcing from leading environmental organizations that have helped build campaign expertise and experience um, that's transferable, I feel like, to the business because particularly this function is about the impacts and understanding the issues. But I think getting getting an understanding of the marketing technicalities, the bits and pieces is so important in, in this work as well. Great. Well, Ashley, it's been a fascinating conversation to learn about Seventh Generation's work and its deep dive into Real Zero and some of the tools it's used and its strategy to sort of engage customers. So thank you so much for spending time with us on Climate Rising. Thanks, Mike. It's been really fun. That was my conversation with Ashley Orgain, Chief Impact Officer with Seventh Generation. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, share with your friends, and don't forget to rate and review. For show notes, head over to climaterising.org or click on the link in the podcast information. You've been listening to Climate Rising. I'm your host, Mike Toffel. Kate Zarenner is our producer, and Craig McDonald is our audio engineer. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode of Climate Rising. See you then.